And welcome to Inside Baseball with Old Chestnut. I'm Liam Allen with my friend Morris Sachs. Good to have you back, pal. It's it's so good to be back. And I was just going to ask you, could we just listen to an hour of fish and just tell jokes or something? Because I was going to play it. I was going to let it go. It's so good. <laughs> um, you, you know that is EG's favorite song. Oh no way. way! No way! Yeah. It opened the yeah. last night at the yeah. garden. Open. I'm going. I'm actually going with. I didn't know that if that's ever opened a show. That dude, it's always an encore. It's so good, dude. And I chase that song too. So if EG chases it to open the last night at MSG, congratulations, yeah. EG. I know that there is no better feeling than chasing the songs. And me and my <laughs> my daughter and I chase songs, and we got them this week at MSG. But to get it as the opener on the last night. Yeah. 
Yeah, oh my friend, chapeau. And you know what? A, a listener pointed out. Okay, as you know, I did the show. I'm sure you didn't listen. I'm sure you didn't listen to it. No, right? I I did. I did. I have notes. <laughs> okay, thank you. Uh, you know, I, I I mentioned that they might be the greatest American band, and somebody's re- response was like, "Look, they've never had a number one hit, and they're a cover band." And I and I read the email, and I said, "You know what? He's not wrong." Okay, they. <laughs> They are a cover band, okay? Yeah. Their yeah. top, like some of their 20 best songs are covers of Bowie, The Talking Heads, Jimi Hendrix, Led Zeppelin, okay, Neil yeah. Young. It was just, just song. I was running through the yeah. list and I said, oh boy. I said, he yeah. he's 100% correct. They are a cover band. <laughs> I thought you were going to go with the email we got saying that um, Ashkenazi Jews were huge fans of... Okay. Uh, jam band, which what are the, I did the chances. Well, 100 percent. Incredible, 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 really. Well, thank you for minding the shop while I was away. I, I had a really uh bad run of luck in terms of scheduling, and I missed a bunch of things obviously, two episodes. But thank you, I think you did an outstanding job. Well thank done, you. thank you. And I will remind you, um. In case there's been any chatter, you are signed to that per- personal service contract, and I I ain't no band leader. Okay. <laughs> I understand. I understand. I turned down. I turned down a lot of offers for people that wanted to to fill in for you. Okay. I got a lot of emails after I did the solo show. People say, "Hey, look, I love I love the show, but it would be good if you know maybe this is my yeah. opportunity to come on." So there was there was a couple people that I don't I don't want to mention their names, but I, I settled with Leslie after I, I declined a couple of generous offers for people that wanted to sit and chat. But I, you yeah. know, I thought that Leslie was the right choice. Dude, he's so good. We've talked about him on 90 of a hundred shows. And I thought just for him to come in and let the audience hear him firsthand, and I knew he'd be awesome. And he was, dude. I mean, he's yeah. Is so good at it. Um, and to have him sit down, I, I want to thank Leslie again. I got a lot of emails from the audience. I want to thank the audience for, for tuning into that because look, Leslie did an, an amazing rating. Okay, he yeah. he mopped the floor with me. Oh, so, did he? Oh, God. <laughs> well, <laughs> okay. Well, what they say success has many fathers, right? Yeah, exactly. But, um, well, anyway, it's good to be back. I, I, Again, scheduling wise, it was a debacle. I understand. Uh, not, Ed's, having not having the point. <laughs> we'll address that in a moment, shall we? Um, Ed's son got married. I missed the wedding. Heartbroken. You know, one of my closest personal friends' son gets married, can't be there. Um, made zero shows at the garden for fish. Yeah. And then maybe the most painful of them all was. Yesterday was Leadville, mm-hmm. and it had been my intention to be there at the finish line to watch my friends, Jason Tullis, the GOAT, John mm-hmm. Benson, Kale, uh, 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 and Hudson Kelt, uh, all did outstanding jobs. Uh, John Benson, I, you know, once again, mm-hmm. totally fucked up the scheduling, and uh um so i i i'm speechless but it did really reinvigorate my enthusiasm for the leadville and the brothership and the texting going back and forth yesterday or something you know it's one of those things that 
somebody described it uh, modern art to me like they were they would see a modern art painting and the comment would be well i could do that but you didn't so right true. yep and so many people that we ride with look at that event and and you know as well as i do they look at it and they're like ah, i can develop no no you don't understand you maybe you could but you can't assume that that's something you're going to pull off and and that's why we have the buckle dinners and yeah. and it's just that knowing it's just that knowing look so it's a special um, day it really is <laughs> yeah but uh a special kudos to uh um hudson kelt who he can't be 20 uh he came in under nine hours incredible um, and then uh there's a young lass i forget her first name but her last name is yamaguchi i think anna and I'm, yeah. anna i met her parents uh craig um and uh the, the mom's name escapes me but they're friends of uh Mike Gregoire's and she did a ginormous job. I mean, she was uh, sub nine hour. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So anyway, it was a it was a big day for the friends of uh, Idwalk and and, um, and Jason Tullis, your coach. So for the listeners who don't know, Jason Tullis is was Morris's is Morris's coach, and Jason coached me for Leadville. And he wrote, he raced it yesterday. So instead of doing the, the the pit stuff and the and the support team, he raced it. And he did the men's fifty to fifty nine age group, which is arguably the second most competitive. Uh, it's probably it's the third most competitive gross group. It's pro men. It's guys that are going to win the thing outright. It's pro women. Women they're going to win the thing outright. And then there's everyone else. And then the pecking order is probably men 50 to 59 because you're dealing with an age group of guys that are in that sweet spot of life where they're not young. They're not going to hang with the 21-year-old kids anymore, but they don't consider themselves old timers. So you get that 51-year-old guy that's going to give it a run for its money. And that is the group that is always – when I used to do bike racing, that was always the biggest group. I'd show up for a mountain bike race. And there'd be 25 guys in the 19 to 29. There'd be 35 guys in the 29, 39. And then there'd be 55 guys in the 50 plus group. It's something about that age group that is just ultra competitive and ultra popular. And I think Jason did in the top 100 of that group. So to check in in the top 100 of that highly competitive age bracket is is just really, really impressive. Um yeah. So, yeah, again, yeah. it's like Jason, he got Morris, he got Morris a belt buckle, he got me a belt buckle off the couch. Okay, so this guy has Char Charlie Rimkus, Charlie Rimkus, exactly. I mean, exactly. And, and dozens of people, dozens so. of like high profile, bold face names he operates with. And yeah. so he went out and raced it yesterday and he put up a good number, um, like nine yeah. and change. 915 or something amazing like that. So congratulations yeah. to JJ. It's a fun day. Leadville, I saw the race. So you just get butterflies thinking about it and, and reliving what you've done through it. And again, Morris Morris set that up for me. So it's just a it's just a perfect memory for me that I that I'll cherish forever from that you and I got to share. Um yeah. So um, yeah, Leadville. Anyway, you know, yeah. it's uh it's uh, I guess we could talk all day, but yeah. probably one tenth of one percent of our listeners give a shit. I I sure. guess in, in terms of my cycling career, if I could call it a career, my one regret is I didn't start as a mountain biker. 
it's way it's way better it's and it, it just is, is proof of concept you see pro mountain bikers become pro road riders oh, yeah. all the time you never see them go the other way never never it's, it's a- just too just too fucking hard yep. it's just too fucking hard but anyway um we proceed um welcome back you know thank you um you know uh while you and i both hate to be the type of guy to be accused of piling on i think we get exemption here because we were literally i believe the first ones out there to point out the absurdity going on at goldman sachs a long time ago a long time ago (laughs) and i i I think we need to do a little bit of a deep dive on this situation and i'm going to start kind of like a quentin tarantino movie i'm going to start out at the end and work backwards if i may correct i i predict in three years goldman sachs will not exist in the form it exists today something is going to happen back to a partnership no no like Dean Witter or uh, Bates, Halsey, Stuart Shields, or, yep. you know, Muriel yep. Stiebert. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And, and let me run through this because I can marry a couple of concepts here, okay. which I've been wanting to do for a long time. Um, you know, for it's well over a year, I wanted to spend a show talking about accounting. And it, it just, it just never, I've never found a way to marry it into the conversation. Yet, that's my background. And I never wanted to be an accountant. Uh, I've never practiced accounting, but I have two degrees in it and I passed the CPA exam. And what I've come to understand is uh, that's the language of business. If you can understand accounting, there isn't anything someone's going to present in front of you that you're not going to be able to reverse engineer. And um, I happen to it mostly because is I perseverate, I'm bad at math. And I wanted to get a degree with some sort of business background. And I knew where I went to school, getting a business administration degree wasn't all that impressive. I literally didn't have the math capability to major in economics or major in finance. And so I went into accounting because that's adding, subtracting, multiplying, dividing, which I I can do um, with the aid of a calculator. But um, but but what I what I did find was it it caught my attention and I, I did. You know, like most things in life, I I became competent at it. I was never spectacular, but I got good enough that I became to use it as a tool. So um, let's uh, start out with one little bit of accounting and then kind of split off to, to something else that we'll come back. But there's a formula in accounting. Assets equals liabilities plus net worth. And if you always keep that in the front of your mind, you will be able to figure anything out. Because um, unlike Kathy Wood describing uh, 
the economy as an identity, uh, this is, this has to equal. Yep. And if it doesn't, you've done something wrong. And and so Repeat what I like. Repeat it again. Assets equals liabilities plus net worth. Thank you. It's just that simple. It's it's what do you own and how did you pay for it? So if you bought a car, you either took cash, which is an asset, or you took out a loan, which is a liability. That's kind of pretty much as complicated as it gets, right? Okay. So uh, let's just set that aside because it's worth hitting again. But um, as we as we think about the situation and my um, uh, what's the word um, prediction about the demise of Goldman Sachs, I'd like to um, mention to people who aren't aware of this. There was a great, great book written a number of years ago. Uh, it's called the Lehman Trilogy. And it was written by an Italian guy and translated into English. And I got the book. I don't know how I came to it, but I read it. And it's written in a peculiar style. It's written in blocks of paragraphs, Sometimes it was prose, sometimes it rhymed, but it told the story of the beginning and the end of Lehman Brothers. And for somebody who obviously trained as an accountant, but spent my entirety as a student of the markets, this resonated with me because it was old time Wall Street. It was like the Jim Grant kind of thing. And it talked about the the Lehman people that came over from Europe and they started, I think, a cotton business. Alamed. And they and they, you know, grew and uh they grew and they grew, became a force to be reckoned with. And um then in very short order, they blew through their capital doing things having kind of lost focus on their core business and the company went out and that was the end of the Lehman brothers and one of the original traditionally formed um, uh, investment banks. And um, it's a also became a play on Broadway, which I didn't expect to like, but they did a spectacular job. And I'll bet somewhere on YouTube or something, you could see this thing. It's First of all, I highly recommend the book. Okay. Um, but secondly, the, the play was done in a unique fashion. Yeah, three actors do all the characters. Yeah, yeah. It was really, really, really special. So um, let me see how I can tie all this together and why it means so much to me, you know, because a couple of people ask me, it's like, why do you have such a bug up your ass about this DJ Saw guy? And it it kind of came together for me in, in this way, which is, um, so being a person who likes the history of Wall Street 
and you go back and you see how these firms were formed. And the Lehman Brothers one is is good because it shows the entire run from beginning to end. And um, why the Goldman Sachs thing resonates to me is because, you know, it was a firm that was started by Jews in a time when Jews weren't welcome on Wall Street. And it was a family business. And they grew it into unarguably one of the best investment banks in history, right? And when I saw Lloyd Blankfein put in charge of the thing, I I knew it wasn't any good because I, I met him a number of times in London. He was a fat guy with a skanky beard, with a stinky cigar, mean as a junkyard dog. And it just made no sense to me how this prestigious of a firm would choose somebody like that to represent it. And I go back to the two guys that ran it before it kind of went off the rails when it was a partnership. Can you tell me about those two guys that were the, the two gentlemen that were really squared away guys? What's their names? Before it was Corzine, before it was, it was. Yeah, you, you know, I'm embarrassed to say senior moment. I'm not. That's fine. That's fine. I'll it was it. like Weinberg. There was who I think might have started as an elevator operator in the firm. Okay. And um, um, but as somebody pointed out to me, who I know would prefer not to have his name mentioned. All you need to know about Lloyd Blankfein is every prior chairman of Goldman went on to work as an ambassador, <laughs> as head of the Treasury. I know. Lloyd holds court at Twitter. Okay. <laughs> oh, Which, <don't> <laughs> you know, it's it's a cry for help, right? Yep. Yep. So that that tells you what the world thinks of of uh, of Lloyd. So let's go back to why I'm predicting the demise of Goldman Sachs. Weinberg um, and Whitehead. Weinberg and Whitehead. That's it. Yeah. Right. After them, Le, De, Le Deluge. Is that what the French John, quote is? John Weinberg, the son of Sidney Weinberg, and John yes. Whitehead assumed the roles of co-senior partners in 1976, once again emphasizing the co-leadership at the farm, at the at the firm. Right. Excuse me, yeah, farm. exactly, exactly. So now let's go back to assets equals liabilities plus, plus net worth, right? So uh, I won't get this exactly right, and I'll use this this podcast is based on a true story close enough because <laughs> i'm not going to get all this right but um when back in the day when salomon brothers was a standalone entity they traded at a lower price earnings ratio than other investment banks the reason being that their revenues were generated from trading, which are less stable, meaning 
investment banks, regular banks, they generate a lot of fee income, which is relatively predictable, i.e. less risky, deserves a higher PE. Salmon Brothers and then Salmon Fibro, it was it was all it was all trading, right? So they they had a much lower PE. So the reason they had a lower PE was obviously the volatility of the earnings. But in reality, it was the assets of the firm, the employees got in the elevator at the end of every day and went home. Yep. And they didn't have to come back. Yep. So let's go to what's happening at Goldman now. Now, I haven't uh, kept track, but I think it's fair to say that they've lost a tremendous number of their top talent yep. to go to other places. And now it's a little bit of like, you know, don't panic. But if you are going to panic, make sure you're first. So what's very quickly going to happen, and it's happening as we speak, anybody who's sought after is leaving and is going to leave. And so when you go back to your equation of assets equals liabilities plus net worth, you realize those assets, the employees don't show up on the balance sheet. So you're left with liquid assets, you're left with illiquid assets. But when you get the head of investment banking leaving, you get the head commodity guy leaving, like one of the top senior advisors, like an older gentleman, just decided to, to, um, to pull up stakes you know, it's like the boss said, those jobs are leaving town and they ain't coming back. Heck yeah. Those guys, so, so the people that are leaving are gone for good. First of all, they weren't laterals like DJ Dickhead, hmm. right? They were part of the original culture. Oh. And I'll tell you, and I'm sure many of our older listeners will agree with me. Culture is everything. That's why, you know, Goldman existed, why Solomon existed, why Greenwich Capital existed for so long. It's because they cut into a vein of a culture that worked. And single-handedly, with a little assist to Lloyd Blankfein, uh, DJ Salas destroyed the culture. And that's irreversible. You're not going to get the head of investment banking who left to come back. He's just not, he's just not gonna. And um, there's, it's, it's the uh, not virtuous cycle, but vicious cycle, or it's the black hole, right? Anyone that's good is going to get sucked out of there, okay? And anyone who's on the market is not going to go look there for a job. And eventually, you know, the it'll fold in out of itself because I don't know how long the board of directors, you know, it's again, it's one of these great 
it, and this could almost term you to be a socialist. It's one of these great examples. The board of directors is watching this before their very eyes, and they're doing nothing. And why would they? They're getting Stock paid. Price? Stock price? Well, see, so that's that's another thing. That, and I and thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, right now the stock price is great, right? But, you know, you've been doing this long enough to know that that's the price today, right? Once people get wind of the fact that the top talent doesn't want to go to Goldman Sachs, that IMDB, was that the, the Malaysian thing that happened yep. at Goldman Sachs. Plus, I do think, again, not sure, but to the outside, the Silicon Valley Bank thing with Goldman potentially front-running their clients, I mean, that's, that's in, in um, Asia, they have a term, when it's translated, they call it rat-fucking. I, you, yeah, yeah. you know me long I, enough. I, I don't make this shit up, right? I know. So, I know. So what what client can go to Goldman to help with an investment banking deal now when they have lack of credibility with the ethics with the IMDb, and then Silicon Valley Bank goes to them for help, and the first thing they do is blow out the portfolio to their own desk. If I were on a board of directors, I, I they'd be banned. Yeah, and it's and what happens in financial markets to grow that genius Rudiger Dornbusch? Things take a lot a lot longer to happen than you think, and when they happen, they happen much more quickly than you can imagine. Yeah, um, I just I think the only thing keeping that guy alive right now is the board of directors have no financial liability. And, and just, it just is a, um, is that thing that Leslie turned us on that Latin quote, bread and circuses. So now you got the whole thing with Lloyd Blankfein being down in Florida at the holding court in the bar, bad mouthing DJ Sal. While, according to the New York Times, simultaneously having a private meeting with DJ Sal, offering to help in any way he can, including if it meant returning to the firm. Now, like, someone's got to make a movie out of this fucking thing. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's why for however long it's been, however many weeks we've been pounding on this thing. Um, now it's ubiquitous. You can't open the news without it. And and my advice to young analysts at Goldman is leave. Go somewhere while you can get another job because the job cuts and Wall Street are coming fast and furious. And um, that's because business is bad. And business on Wall Street is cyclical. And we are in the beginning of a down cycle. So um, go find yourself a job at a stable firm with 
people that show real leadership and um you know uh, that's kind of words of wisdom from old what if, what, what, what if david solomon came out and and said he came out on his social media tonight and he said look the first 10 junior employees at goldman email me right now we're going to dinner at marivana well i'm sure you get 10 guys because they want the free meal right i've had it from multiple sources quote he ain't a cool guy to hang with i know i know okay so here's no, the thing. <laughs> this is where i'm going this is where i'm going because because there's another boss of an investment bank on wall street that does just that okay and he might do it three times a week all right and he gets 20 guys and girls, young junior employees that were in the office. He says, if you were in the office at Jeffrey's today, email me now. We're going to dinner at Mr. Chow, 7 p.m. Dude, he does this all the time. And it is fucking yeah. awesome. It is it, awesome. It is. It is. That is now, okay. I know that I stand him all the time, and I know this makes you uncomfortable, it, but it is fucking awesome. And that is the difference, dude. If you got if you're if you're sitting at your desk at Goldman at 10 p.m. at 10 p.m. on Friday night, banging away at your Bloomberg terminal, and I'm out at Mr. Chow's with Rich Handler having a nice glass of wine with 10 of my coworkers having the time of my life on Friday night. I'm out the fucking door so fast. I am firing so many applications over to Jeffries. Okay. It would make me insane. And it's not like it was 20 years ago where you, if you left Goldman, you were leaving the Yankees. Now there's 10 other shops that'll pay you the same that have just as good of a reputation. Okay. And you're not going to get shit on at work. Okay. That's the reality. <laughs> That's the reality of Monday morning. Okay. I, I I just just for me I I do have to acknowledge you do have a little bit of a man crush on Rich he's and he's awesome. a great guy. It's, he, I'm watching yeah, it from yeah. dude from the outside looking in from the outside yeah, of, as a right. civilian and not operating on Wall Street. I get three choices. I go oh, Goldman Sachs. All right, yeah, that'd be fine. J.P. Morgan Chase. Okay, cool. Jeffries with Rich. I'm going. Okay, dude. Yeah. He, dialed in he is dialed in he's not some old curmudgeon okay there's all ends of the spectrum there's one end of the spectrum is do you want to go work for joe biden who's going to fall asleep at lunch you know you don't want to do that do you want to go work for like the 22 year old crypto shop and you want to knuckle around bitcoin no you want to go to a good bank with a good boss and there it is i know where it is it's not hard speaking of uh crypto i guess someone got their uh their privileges yanked, and they're uh, Sam Bankman freed. Sam Bankman not freed. <laughs> okay. no. Dude, I was wrong about no. that. I was wrong. I, I'm dead wrong. I was wrong about him not going to jail, dude. Not only is he going to jail, he went. He took the express bus to Brooklyn. Oh, he's not coming out. No, he, he may no. not. He may not come out alive. Yeah, yeah. You know, first of all, first of all, I read somewhere he's vegan. And his mother is a lawyer and yeah. was trying to get some kind of. <laughs> I play golf. I played when I played golf. I played golf with a fellow who ended up going to jail. And I don't want to get into whether it was right or wrong. Understood. He went to jail and he went to one of these light security prisons, right? Yep. But 
you know, vegetables. Like, he ate nothing. Like, so, you know, you have, like, a piece of broccoli, mm -hmm. and you have the floret, and then you have the thing below. The thing below, that's what they got for vegetables, mm -hmm. right? He was in jail seven years. He didn't see a dentist. Yeah. He saw two people drop dead of heart attacks that would have been able to be resuscitated had there been like a doctor. So, you know, this kid, vegan? I, I, you better get to eating, eating I, grilled cheese. I, 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 hate to, I hate to sound like I'm thrilled by someone else's misfortune, but the fact of the matter is, you know, you know you're in trouble. What do you think? Like you invented the, the VPN and no one else is going to figure out that you're trying to do this or that. It's like, buddy, take a deep breath and relax and get accustomed to it because it's going to be like that for a long time. And by the way, how's our pal Lizzie doing? Um, dude, please. I forgot it. She's been forgotten about. Okay. She's been for, she's going to fake. Let's go, let's, let's go visit her. Hey, <laughs> I, I would love to go. Bankman Freed's more realistic. He's realistic. He's right down in Brooklyn. Um, geez. I don't feel like seeing him, but yeah. um, I don't know. So um, anyway, one of the things, we'll, we'll get off the, the rumor mill and try and add a little value. Um, one of the things you had mentioned with Leslie uh, that I'd like to pick up on, if you don't mind, because I think it was a uh, was an excellent concept one of the greatest things for me in my life has been to see the arc of the financial services move from analog to digital okay and so for the premium subscribers and for everyone else i'll unlock the paywall if you go to our website ibwoc.com okay there's a picture on there of me and my partner and president of Greenwich Capital Ben Carpenter you you have a picture of this that mm -hmm. I'm talking about okay so um again uh, I've freed up the paywall so everyone has access to looking at this picture so the I'm the handsome guy on the left all skins. Yeah. <laughs> I was inverted. Go on. The tall, the tall, handsome guy uh, is Ben. And what I want to point out here is not my dashing charm and good looks, but if you look at those groups of monitors in the background, okay? So just over um, my right shoulder, you see two screens in a calculator. Yep. So the two screens, one's on top of another. Those two screens are a Bloomberg system. Well, Bloomberg used to provide their own screens. Above that was a Monroe bond calculator. The previous version was the size of a shoebox and weighed plus or minus 20 pounds. You okay. weren't throwing it? You weren't throwing that thing? <laughs> I, I couldn't lift it. Um, so as we move further to the right, 
Um, if you look at over Ben's uh, right shoulder, you'll see a tiny green monitor. Mm -hmm. Okay. So when I started, a trading floor was filled to the brim with those little green monitors that obviously they're numbers, so it's digital, but that was basically analog, which means this. Each of those lines, which you can barely make out, was a different security. And you would pick up your phone, you would hit a key, which has a direct line to your broker who sat in a room where all the other brokers who accumulated that data. And if you saw a bid you wanted to hit or an offer you wanted to lift, you would call the broker. You would say, I want to buy or I want to sell. And there's a whole list of protocol that I won't bore you with at this point. You know, if, if you want to down the road, because it's it was pretty cool. But in any event, um, that was sort of the cutting edge technology when I joined the business in 1983 full time. Okay. Yeah. Now, as you move from that green screen to the left, you see another screen, which is a monitor of what was then called a Sun Spark workstation, which was the um, the supercomputer of its day. And Greenwich Capital was on the cutting edge of using these supercomputers, the Suns. Uh, but on that Suns workstation, you'll see some different squares. There's a white square, there's a blue square, there's a black square, which is hard to make out. But that was the first amalgamation of moving from analog to digital. So it was taking the data from the green screen and all the other different green screens and putting it into one system that had all the information. Now, here's the, tell them the best part. The best part is if you go down and basically the screen that's principally 90% bluish white and 10% yep, yep. blue, yep, yep. That, was, that was the ambergrist. That was the holy grail. That is what we created and took the data from the analog, moved it to the digital, and then ran it down into what you would look at today and say really nothing more than um, a, a finely dialed in Excel spreadsheet. I was going to say that's what it looks but, like. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But that, that was epic, right? To the point that it's really hard to make out. But so on the screen, all the way to the left of that screen, you would see the security, yeah. different securities. As you move to the right, we would do analytics based on, you know, the where the 
active two-year note was, where the futures were, all sorts of other things. And we felt we were so far ahead of everybody in this that those columns, the description was in code because people routinely come by at the end of the day and steal our printouts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, you know, where do you go to look for oil? Well, where other people found oil, right? right. So we we knew once we, uh, and it was the the collective we, it was not me, it, it, it was E.G., it was John Mannion, it was Amir, it was Scotty, it was Robbie, it was, you know, all, I'm going to forget people's names. But that was really what I think put us, I won't say we were the best, but I would say we were amongst the, the, the top people in our field because we had not only ability to come to investment decisions uh, rationally, we were able to do them in real time, which, you know, time is money. Yeah, yeah. So, um, anyway, I, I hope I did a good job explaining that um, because that right there, that's like 30 years of progress. Yeah. And, um, and uh, uh, you know, I, I'm sure uh, other firms had something similar. Uh, I know when I moved from Continental Bank to Aubrey Lanston, I went from green screen to green screen. Yep, okay. Yep. And back then, you didn't have a real way to keep track of where this myriad of treasury securities would trade. So you'd have a very large piece of paper. I don't know, pick a number. Yeah, you yeah. know, I mean, it, it was like big, like a poster board. Yeah, yeah. And you would write down the issues on the left side. And then when an off the run, meaning not a regularly traded security would trade, you would jot it down you would jot down where an active issue traded, meaning one that regularly traded, and you try and quickly calculate the yield so you could see where they traded in relation to one another. And it was incredibly inexact, incredibly inefficient. But as computers came into being, people picked up on it. And oddly enough, chemical bank was lights out at this stuff. And um, for me, having made the transition, it's just dumb luck that I didn't get blown out of the water because I had no idea where anything traded. And um, fortunately, because of where I worked, we had really good relationships with First Boston, with Solomon Brothers with uh, Lehman, with Goldman. So if a big block needed to be bought or sold, I really had no idea where it should be. And if it was an active issue, th there would be tight markets all over the place. 
Yeah, yeah. But once you got to like two or three issues old, no fucking idea. And this is when, you know, a bond might not trade for like a month. And someone would ask you to bid on a hundred million. And I would look on the screen and I, you know, like if there was a bid or an offer, you know, I'd try and puff it. If there wasn't a bid or an offer, I'd call Ray Pitts at first Boston or I call Joel Casas at Solomon Brothers or I call uh, Paul, um, forget his name, over at Goldman or Ray Pitts at first Boston. And I'd say, hey, Ray, I, I got to bid $100 million. What do, what do you think? And, and he says, I'll, I'll pay you $99.16. So I'd say to the client, I'll pay you $99.14. And being Lanston, they would say, okay, you bought him. And I would say to Ray, okay, I, I'm going to sell him to you here. And, and yeah. so I'd make my two ticks, having no idea what I had just done. Uh, obviously, as I hung around longer and then – made the genius move of going to the French grain company where I really sunk my teeth into understanding where and why things traded. Then, you know, then I started, started to speed up and become more of a, more of a professional, but um, I, don't, I don't know if that's enough of an arc to, to stop at that point, but um that that to me is one of the myriad of things I've seen and experienced. And when you when you look at people and they talk about doing things, and so right now, um, you know, what, what people don't understand is orders of magnitude. And you know, if you're a one lot trader, if you're a five lot trader. If you're a hundred lot trader, regardless of who you are, you're still a fine human being, right? But until you have traded a hundred lot, you don't know what it's like. It's a little bit coming back to Ludville. Until you've gone a power line at noon with 80 miles on your leg, don't tell me you can do it. Prove mm -hmm. you you gotta you gotta prove it, right? So um, one of the things I found kind of funny, um, I, I recall being funny, is one of the things which set me up hugely disadvantaged when I started to fiddle around in the real estate world was in the U.S. government bond market, when you said a trade was done, it was done. There was... It was beyond question, right? Okay. Yep, yep. Now, people make mistakes. That that happens. And remember, at this point, we're writing tickets by hand, and tickets are getting typed in by hand. And okay, so occasionally, an error will get kicked out, and without it, without virtually any exception, those errors errors got resolved in under 60 seconds. Yep. Wow. Okay. But I am reminded of one story and I tried to double check my facts with, um, with uh, one of my former colleagues. Um, Cause there were two incidences, which I look back on with, with regret. 
One is um, back in the day, uh, options, you had to, you had to actually exercise an option. It didn't, you didn't have this automatic. Okay. So we had a trade on with Deutsche Bank where we had, I think, sold them some calls and they were way in the money. And it comes to expiration. And one of the guys um, says to me, you know, this thing's eight points in the money and they got like two minutes to call us to exercise it and they haven't called. And so we were sitting there, we're watching the, we're watching the clock tick and it expires. Yep. And oddly enough, 90 or 20 minutes later, Deutsche Bank calls and says, Oh, we wanna we wanna exercise those options. And uh the the trader says, Well, I better get Morris on the line. And and the salesman says, Hey, we'd like to go ahead and exercise on. And I said, You're out of contract. It they expired. And he's like, What are you talking about? Did he freeze? No. No. He froze on the... Wait, wait, wait. Come on. Don't expire. He's still here. He's still here. Yeah. You hear? Oh, yeah, okay. I got it. Okay. So you said okay. no. So he goes, I want to exercise the options. And you said, no, you're out of contract. I see. No. You're out of contract. And um, it, it went parabolic. Right? Uh. And they went and they got hold of Ted Netzger, greatest guy in the world running the firm at the time and they they got him in the mix and it was like seven million dollar error now keep in mind the trader got 20 percent of that that's a million four yep. right and so ted's telling me you know we don't really want to be perceived as the kind of firm and like ted we spend millions of dollars a year on technology to make sure these things don't happen to us. you It's just how it is. And having come from the French grain company where, you know, there's stories about, you know, the boat shows up three minutes late and you're like, sorry, right? Yeah. So anyway, I, uh, I lost that battle. So that's one of the things I regret. The other one is it's a little bit more complicated, but um we were trading one day and a um a statistic came out and they started crushing the futures now remember we now have all this real time data right so they're busting the futures eg's in there gobbling up the futures and banging out the cash because he knows where that's supposed to be mm -hmm. right but not everybody is on the same wavelength. So he gets a bunch of this shit done and he shows it to me. And I'm like, fuck, that's awesome. Right. And the person we sold the bonds to paid above the market, but it wasn't like points above the market. It, it might've been a half a point above, you know, enough where it's just stupidity. Right. Mm -hmm. 
So anyway, we write the tickets and we move on because we're hedged. We, EG had bought the futures and sold the cash. And uh, another one of our uh, former colleagues, Marks Bowens, uh, who's gone on to other great things, same thing, other end of the room. So it wasn't just like this one-off thing, right? Anyway, that scumbag Howard Lutnick, who ran Canner, called me up and he said, oh, I'm breaking this trade. Excuse me? He said, the, those bonds you sold, the, we had the wrong handle, meaning the full dollar price was wrong. Was wrong, and so we're breaking that trade. And I said, no, it was not the wrong dollar price because I went and I measured where everything was. They paid too much. They paid stupid too much, but it was in, within the realm of the universe, right? Yep. Yep. And 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 I said, look, if you want to break this trade, you need to go have a conversation with Sheldon Goldfarb, chief counsel, because I'm holding you to this trade, right? Business standard, business practice. So anyway, the buyer of those notes who paid too much was this woman named Susan Estes, who in her day uh, thought she was a big shot five-year note trader at Morgan Stanley and had left to go start this mortgage servicer called Countrywide, who was huge and was a huge account Goldman of Greenwich Capital. Mm -hmm. So Susan Estes calls up Ben Carpenter in the picture and tells her, or she tells him, you know, if you don't break this tray, we're not going to do any business with Greenwich again. And that's in the order of magnitude of millions of dollars. So long story short, EG and MB and Marx get screwed for about 800 grand. Now that's 800 grand times 20%. So it was only $160,000. And at a 50% tax rate, it was $80,000. And if I had to split it through it. But it was one of those moments where I'm like going back and forth with Ben, who he and I are, we're partners, right? And I'm like, it's just not right. You just, and anyway. Um, I could complain about this forever. It's not going to change anything, but it's one of those cute stories I remember about, you know, people just behaving badly and yeah. and people yeah. like those stories. So I do. I love anyway. it. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. That's about all I got for you today. I, I do think we hit a couple of good notes, though. Yeah. Um, you're gonna you're ready yeah. to bury, you're burying Goldman Sachs. I mean, the drum beat has really ramped up on that, though. I mean, it is just a, <laughs> dude, it was a trickle. It was a drip. It was a dripping faucet, and it was and you could it was you could put it out of 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 the of the of the line of vision. But now it has become the dripping faucet has be they have turned the faucet on. Okay, and when that happened, I thought I thought you were gonna go with what if DJ Sal sent out an email hey look i realized the error of my way you know i'm i'm not going out in the backyard to play softball till i do my homework i understand the artist thing doesn't really play well with the investors i Dude, thought I, you were going to say is no, that no, going to no. work and i 
No, the tidbit, the tidbit from the article, the only thing I learned from that article that I didn't know, okay, was that he was from Scarsdale, okay? So, like, they, they tried to paint it. I think the sentence might have been, like, blue collar Scarsdale. And I, you know, obviously I, <laughs> I fell off my desk. Okay. Folks, I grew up in Westchester. All right. There's Westchester is primarily a blue collar working, working community county. Okay. Until you get to Scarsdale and Bedford where they're palatial estates. Okay. So the idea that he came from Scarsdale. All right. I mean, please. So he was a spoiled rich kid to begin with. All right. So he went to college at Hamilton. All right. They were like, oh, OK, like spoiled, like snobby little kid from 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 Westchester. Because if you grow up in in Scarsdale, you're 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 born with a silver spoon. All right. There's no there's no hard, hard life. There's no working out of Scarsdale. OK, you get a ticket, you get a ticket to Hamilton and then you go work. All right. But yeah, I mean, Trump. The, I mean, really, like Scarsdale. The article was like, "Oh, he's from Scarsdale." I was like, "Hello, hello. Have you ever driven up the Hutch to Scarsdale? Gated, lush estates. Okay, spare me." Like I was like, "That's so." So that's part of his problem. So, so you're a little snide bully because they call him a bully. All right, and it's a classic. It's just, it was just a comical article, and I thought the whole time while I'm reading it, I was like, "What am I? Gonna, is there going to be a new tidbit for this?" And I thought to myself, I was like, she just kind of distilled down a hundred episodes that we've been sitting here talking about. <laughs> like, dude, like the the who got a blowjob last night, dude. That's old news. That's six months ago for our listeners. Our listeners have been when's, aware. And when's the last time you said that? When you're in college, in the fraternity? Please, please. <laughs> uh, oh, just high. Well, call. we we. We should probably stop here and keep our fingers crossed that we can get this thing to post. Yeah, yeah, I got to go. I'm going to lunch with Rich Handler, so I'll see you guys. <laughs> <laughs> Tell my and I, will you? Later. <laughs>